Welcome to the Next Visions and How's a Beautiful Business podcast, a further episode. My name is Christian. I'm heading the company building unit of Porsche Digital. My name is Tim and I'm the co-founder and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. So we have this beautiful podcast bringing together several people. So at least two of them, thought leaders. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the purpose now and uh, the setup. So we are actually at the House of Beautiful Business in Lisbon, Portugal. It's the annual gathering of our think tank and community, which is also called the House of Beautiful Business, that brings together different voices from different sectors of society, business leaders, nonprofit leaders, artists, scientists, policymakers, and have them explore visions for the future of technology, business, and society that are more humane, more, more beautiful. One of the design principles of the house is is really serendipity. So not knowing exactly what's going to happen mm -hmm. next, playing with that. And that's also the setup for this conversations between two, as we call them, residents. So imagine you are at the House of Beautiful Business and you are guided or you walk into a room and you meet another person. You know their name, you may have read their bio, but you don't know exactly uh, what to expect. And there is no preparation. In fact, there's not even a moderator, which mm -hmm. is kind of unusual for a podcast conversation. It's just these two people who then have to make sense of the situation and engage in a conversation. And the purpose is basically to look for next visions, also get inspiration from our side from these kind of discussions. So who are the two beautiful minds that we brought together? Yeah, so uh, the conversation that we're listening to now is between Kusina Palovikova, who is the co-founder of Secret City Trails. It's a startup that offers, as the name suggests, secret city trails, a different way, Sounds a more playful way to explore cities. And, and she's in conversation and for the first time actually meeting with Itai Palti. Itai Palti is the founder of a movement and platform called Conscious City. So he is deeply entrenched in the field of urban planning and urbanism. And he's really thinking about what kind of models and visions do we have for the city? How will the city evolve? And how do we want the city to evolve in the future? Of course, cities are super relevant for us for the future, also for mobility. So I'm really curious listening to it. So let's do that, Tim. Christina, hi, nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Itai Palti. What's your surname? Palovikova. Christina. Cool, I'll let yeah. you say that. Um, <laughs> where are we? We are in Lisbon, in a really, really old building and in a room with many old books. Uh, feels like we are back in time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. There's a bunch of old books. There's a statue behind you that's pretty creepy. Um, <laughs> he's looking not in my direction, thankfully. And uh, yeah, we're in the Academy of Sciences in Lisbon, which is, I guess, a very old institution. It's nice to be here with lots of... Um, antique um, furniture and wooden floors and decorated ceilings. Yeah, squeaky and all yeah. that, but really nice. So you organized a few walking tours of the city? Yeah, so we organized city discovery games. Hmm. So we are not there, so it's guideless. But this would be a great place to create a game because what we do is we ask you, what is it? on top of the head of the mayor behind you and then you see a crown and we really try to playfully show you the little things that makes cities beautiful. Mm -hmm. So what kind of ideas and thoughts and feelings are you trying to bring out in people? A couple things. First of all, spontaneous discovery. So we feel like 
as adults, we forgot how to play games and how to just go and enjoy and be in the presence. And second, so our games are usually two to three hours long, but what we really try to do is to change how you look at the cities. So we started this for locals and we still, majority of our customers are locals and we want to make you see the things that you missed out. So where do you live? I live in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. Okay, I haven't been there, but let's say you walk on the street or you bike or you go by car and you don't notice the statues or the little plaques on the walls or... For example, in Amsterdam, there is a crowns on top of lampposts. Sometimes they are gold, sometimes they are blue, sometimes red, depending on the area you are in. And these little details that we just miss because we are, you know, busy mm-hmm. living. Uh, so that's what we want to show. So I work at the intersection of architecture and neuroscience. So we look at the way that we perceive the world and the way that the world affects us cognitively or our, our mood. Our behavior. And when we think about the kind of things that you're talking about, we talk about, for example, sense of place or sense of belonging to a place. And a lot of it is related to narrative. So what narrative are you aware of, of the space that you live in and that you inhabit? And we look at it because it's a lot of the time related to well-being, social well-being, and the connection you have to a space. And therefore, do you have pro-environmental or pro-social behavior because of that connection to space? So that's, I think that the work you're doing has a huge impact on people's perception of their belonging to a space. Exactly. And we started Secret City Trails because we wanted locals to fall in love with their city again. We started in Amsterdam during over-tourism. Mm. It's still a problem, but at the time we felt like people just don't like the city anymore and They go to the same places. They don't really go outside and explore their own areas where they live in. And exactly to show and discover together with other people. And I think the the play with it, like so you actually play a game because then you are immersed in it. So you don't really think. And that's what uh, makes you really like the city, I believe. Mm. But I don't study it, so I'm really interested Well, to you, hear you more. know it intuitively. Yeah, exactly. Like, so yeah. what are the things that people are most kind of attracted to or curious about in the walks? It's um, Or games? Yeah, so it's really interesting because lots of feedback that we get is that I live in the city for 10 years and I didn't know about these places. Or like on a street you took me and I never discovered the plaque on the wall. So like these making people really look up and look around, I think that's the most important thing that we try to achieve and we are achieving And that's what people are also surprised about. So do you take them to a space and you point them to this hidden information or do you give them clues to we, try and find it? We give them clues. So uh-huh. for example, one of the riddles would be follow a gaze of the creepy statue until you reach crown and tell us what's under it. And then you have to look around to find the statue. Then you have to see where it's going, you go, okay, is it this crown, that crown? So you really, and it's also riddly. So you also have to discuss with your friends or family or team colleagues, whoever you play with. And you have to use your creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. And we play with the city. So we don't just point you out because then you wouldn't remember it. Yeah, there's, um, so there's a nice theory and way of teaching called playful learning. And Playful Learning was developed by Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Roberta Golingoff, who are child psychologists. And what Playful Learning does is it creates a framework that allows us to memorize information better because we discover it ourselves. 
right? So instead of being pointed to a piece of information, we get given a clue that allows us to discover ourselves, and then we remember it better. And also we enjoy the experience better. And I think you're kind of intuitively creating those situations, which is great. Exactly. Like when you look even to animals, right? Like play is such a strong instinct of animals. Like there was this research done on polar bear playing with a dog every day, coming at the same spots to play with a dog if, uh, for like three weeks at a time. And the polar bear actually had no food, but he wouldn't eat the dog or she, mm. because she just wanted to have a play time. So it is in us in the animal instinct to play and to enjoy and to learn by playing. Yeah. Um, but as adults, we kind of forget about it. And, and it's also interesting and fun we use play in work spaces of course we learn that way we use play in many different ways but especially travel or experiences why do we read the big books or the blogs and we make research out of it instead of just enjoy and discover so you say that people forget to explore and play or why do you think people forget that is a hard question I I think we, because we are working and we are in our routines and we do everything, you know, checkbox and move. And yes, we are going holiday. We want to have a great time. So we plan everything. And then you just don't leave it up for just exploration, I believe. Do you mm. play during your daily day I, life? Yeah, I do. Because maybe because I'm aware of its importance, right? But I think it's, uh, you have to consciously choose to live that kind of life and allow yourself to explore and play. And I think it's very, especially with the pressures we have now in terms of a lot of digital interactions, a lot of cognitive overload from information coming in. It's very hard to say, hold on one second, I'm going to go and explore and perhaps bet with my time whether it's actually going to be productive or not. I think we find it very difficult to place that bet. Exactly. I like, I, we create games and sometimes I really have to put down in my calendar to go and just explore and do something else, which is really hard. So what do you do to find inspiration in the cities, for example? Um, so I walk a lot and I think observation is a really important aspect of what, so I'm an architect by profession. It's what architects do a lot of the time, but it's also what behavioral scientists do. So I'm kind of like observing twice um, on both kind of lenses and Usually when I visit a new city, I tend to not go to museums. So hopefully no one's going <laughs> to judge me for that. Um, but I, I don't go to museums. I, I prefer to go and walk around the streets and see how people are behaving and try and find those like kind of hidden treasures, which I think are really the small things in the city and the not kind of the big things that everyone are pointing towards. That's like the nuances of where culture and I think the magic of spaces exist. Okay. Yeah. I, well, we are in the museum, so <laughs> now you explored one in Lisbon. But I fully agree. Like, even before I studied Secret City Trails, that's what I would do as well. Just go and explore and get lost in a city. And even the big buildings, like even if you go to the main square of Lisbon, when you really look around, you find so many interesting statues and things and little the little things that people draw, like... You see a lion looking like a dog because they didn't know how lion looks like. So they just read about it in a book and then mm-hmm, they wanted to mm-hmm. create it. So these are the things where you can learn so much from the details. So I fully agree with that. So do you feel that people take away things they've learned from you, not in terms of kind of the content or the knowledge, but actually the way of thinking and perceiving 
Do you think you're teaching them that as well? I really hope so and believe so. But yeah, I um, even at the beginning, I made lots of friends play our games always uh, to test it. And I was walking with my friend. At, she was visiting me here in Lisbon. And she was, oh, look, you should use this in your game and pointing out somewhere in the city. I'm like, do you now like look around more? She's like, yeah, yeah. Since I played the game, I learned to like look and see other things. Amazing. And that's really nice to yeah. hear and to make people be more curious. What's like your favorite thing that people discover that you kind of set them on this trail to discover? The first 30 games we created ourselves. Now we work with locals who actually create the games in their own cities. And for example, in Amsterdam, that's my favorite. You walk on a canal and you have this mouse on one of the houses. And on across the canal, you have a little cat. And they always say like, there's always something. And there was always continuous play between mouse and cat and always chasing each other. So that's super nice. But I think it's what you search for. So I was speaking once, I had a client meeting and we can partner with them. And this guy was like, I actually know you. I played your game three years ago and you showed me this place next to my house and I still go there every day. I'm like, okay, this is cool. (laughs) So it really depends on what you're looking for. But just to make you be immersed in the experience, I think that's the most important part. Because we are, as you said, there's so much on the phone and we are always looking down and always being distractive. But when you play our games, you really have to pay attention and really have to look all the time. And that's, I think, the thing that we want to create, to be immersed and be in the city. Yeah, so immersion is is a really interesting idea because even though you're creating experiences that are engaging, it's actually a form of disengagement from other things in our lives. So when you look at, for example, restoration theory of how we restore our cognitive functions and our attention capacity, some of it is related to what's called soft fascination. So soft fascination is a interest in something with a specific intensity, obviously Mm -hmm. not super intense. And I think those kind of games of like looking around, trying to perceive things that you wouldn't usually are related to this kind of soft fascination and, and... the restorative effect of it is really important to us, especially in the time when we have a lot of cognitive load, because it's not just about the ability to pay more attention to things. It also affects our ability to empathize and our ability to think creatively. And a lot of other aspects that under pressure don't work so well. So what's interesting about what you're doing is really, it's taking something that's very human that we are disconnected from a lot of the time and bringing it back to people as a tool to, I guess, become more human again. I wouldn't say it better. We need to to work with you. (laughs) Put it in these words. Um, Yeah, exactly. And then while you solved the riddle, people were like, okay, but I also want to learn about the building that I discovered now. So we also share stories and we try to go deeper in the stories. And they're always short, right? A couple sentences because that's what you remember. Mm -hmm. Then also they feel like they learned something while they, you know, they earned it and they discovered it. But what are you working on now? Like what is the, because this is really interesting, like where do you see the vision of the cities or the... Uh, so, so I think most of my work is related to the fact that I think we've distanced ourselves from creating spaces that are good for us, both on the basic levels of well-being, but also up to self-actualization. And so my work 
both through Conscious Cities and through my architecture and urban design practice, which has a lab inside, is related to creating the methodologies and the mechanisms to make that shift, the paradigm shift in the way that we design and create the built environment towards human-centered approach. So how do we not just talk about basic comfort levels like temperature or, or materiality, but how do we talk about things higher up in the Maslow pyramid, like mm-hmm. sense of belonging, like friendship, like empathy or self-actualization. And all these things require us to understand what human mechanisms those are built on. So what cognitive functions, what behavioral aspects, you know. And, and so through an understanding of how our relationship with space affects us, we're able to give insights for the way we design spaces, but also how spaces evolve over time to become more human-centered. And so sometimes we look at work that maybe in the past would have been seen as just for fun or just for entertainment, but we make visible the hidden value of those things in order to be able for that to be the driver of how people make design decisions in the future. Can you give an example, actually? Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so some of the um, the way I try to break down what you do into how it affects our behavior and our cognition is, is a good example. So in playful learning, how do you reimagine what education looks like? Maybe education doesn't need to be in the school. Maybe education is just part of everyday life, right? So how do we take education out of the school and put it in opportunities in the street? That's like an example that we did in Philadelphia. So we took an area of the city and we created opportunities for interaction between caregiver and children and also embedded different development skills into those games. So were kids able to work on their executive functions or self-control or were there pieces of specific knowledge like um, how do you develop language or narrative? And so you take these opportunities of what spaces could do and you place that into the environment. No, I fully agree. And that's what we really try to do with the games and making you to speak and even making it more difficult in some way that it's not so clear when you read the description, be like, oh yes, what does it mean? And someone says, we should go left. Someone says, we should go right. And then you have to discuss it. What does it mean to you? And that's what we believe we are creating. Yeah. I think you do something really poetic, which is you you help people find hidden things in the city, but actually what you're doing is also helping people find the hidden value of, of human nature, right? Of things that we disconnect from. Yeah, exactly. But like, what was it? Plato said it once, uh, you learn about other person more in one hour of play than one year of conversations. Right. And I think it's so true. And some people don't like it, you know? Some people are like it was too difficult or like, you know, because it takes time to break through the ego to be like, I don't know what they mean. I need to really think outside of the box. So that's also interesting. So now we change also how we design the game. So at the beginning, it's like easier clues to warm you up and then it gets difficult. Mm-hmm. And, um, and more and more people then enjoy it. And it's interesting to see the psychology behind people trying to break through the oh yeah, this is something else. Now I have to really think, and what does this mean? Or oh, it's not really clear. And you have various people in the groups. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like you came up with a process that allowed you to improve the experience over time. And the way that I look at it is, okay, what is the science of curiosity? And that's kind of one of the first, my first 
pieces of curiosity into behavioral science was actually looking at curiosity. And so, you know, you gave the example of um, you have to start with something easy and make it more difficult. And so when, when you look at the science of curiosity, a lot of it is related to what's called the information gap. And the information gap is what information are you given and what information are you missing that you're aware of? And the ratio between those two things decide our level or affect our level of motivation to reach that. So if you have a tiny bit of information and you know you're missing a whole lot of information that's going to be too much effort, your motivation is going to go down. If you have almost all the information and then just a tiny bit of information that's missing, your motivation is also going to go down because it's not so interesting. So you have this like spectrum of ratio between the known and the unknown that you play with. And that's really the science of curiosity, but you're doing it in action and intuitively through trial and error. Yeah, exactly. And then I have a question about it. Is it possible that some people see more information than the other in the curiosity or? Yeah. So, I mean, we're all, we're all very different. We come from with different bodies of knowledge as well and different levels of awareness and different abilities to perceive information. So that, that's kind of the difficulty of creating an experience that's universally curious for everyone. Um, but I think there are some kind of, there are mechanisms that are probably more universal for making people curious, like a narrative that doesn't quite make sense or an object that is slightly incongruous to how we usually understand that object. It's all kind of related to information, levels of information that you have and you're missing. Yeah, that I agree with. And yeah, that's why sometimes we know we have to start with easy and then we it has to get a little bit difficult at the end. It's really interesting. The last one or two riddles have to be easy again because you remember the last moment of the experience. Mm -hmm. So when we had really difficult riddle at the end, the review score was a little bit lower, although overall they liked the experience, but we really challenged them at the end. So now it's exactly what you said, but we just learned it by yeah. experimenting with it. But we get so... Um What was the sentence? So curiosity killed the cat and satisfaction brought it back, right? So um, you think, what happens when you attain that piece of information that you're curious about? Biologically, what happens is that dopamine is released into the brain and that's like the feel good that makes you feel good. And so every time in your game, someone finally manages to catch that piece of information, they get this like hit of dopamine and then they feel good. So there's a real like physiological basis to what curiosity does and why we, we look for the reward that curiosity is promising us. Yeah, that is true. And it's really, but it's really, really tiny line between curiosity and frustration, right? Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. if you can't solve the riddle and you're close, then people get frustrated. And that's also interesting to see how many, they don't really, usually they don't give up. They can skip the riddle and continue. But it's interesting to see some people try 50 answers and some try three or four and then they, you know, move on or like ask for hints or yeah. really look uh, for clues. So that's... Yeah, so curiosity is kind of like a lot of other drives. There's a bell curve to it. So it goes up and then it goes back down. And the same with hunger, right? So you can get super hungry and then after a while it goes back down. The same with sexual desire is the same as well. So that bell curve, what you need to try and hit is the fact that they don't start going down. The motivation doesn't go down. And the reason it goes down because of frustration, like you said, it's too difficult. It's unattainable. So I'm going to take my attention and divert it somewhere else because it's actually not very effective to keep on diverting my attention towards that. 
Or then, you know, some people don't ever ask for hints because they feel like it's uh, cheating or something. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see people's reaction or how they actually take the challenge and play the games in the cities and how they yeah, perceive the experience. I, so I, I find it really inspiring, your kind of work, because I always try and find, um, you know, a scientific lens to improving this work. But I think there's plenty of people that have that intuitively understand human nature and human behavior and can embed it into what they're doing. So I want to go on one of your trips and in, in games. You can, we can if set it up it in, after. If yeah. you do it in Tel Aviv, great. If not, I travel a lot, so it would be great to we join you. 42 cities across Europe, not yet Tel Amazing. Aviv, but we'll figure it out. Yeah. Okay. And then the question, where do you see the cities going or do you see any great city in Europe that is already like trying to do what you're trying to do, like make it more livable and so on. There are many cities who are really trying, but one that is actually like a yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of cities. So Tel Aviv happens to be a very good city for that, partly because of the efforts of the city, but also partly because of the social fabric and the cultural values that are part of that mm-hmm. community. But for example, Barcelona creating super blocks, which means they take nine blocks and they pedestrianize the middle streets. And what that means is that there's a lot more space for kids to play and for families to be there and for, you know, people to sit in cafes without cars driving next to them. Medellin in Colombia is actually one of the best examples of how they used urban design to completely change the experience of the city, but also a lot of the problems that they had with crime and unemployment. There's like a bunch of different examples that you can look at cities that use behavioral science or so on to change the experience and solve societal issues. But there are also cities that are heading in the wrong direction. And I think it's it's a question of... Um, what values the people who are creating the cities, what values are they embedding into that city? Interesting. What do you see? How do you see the culture? So Southern European culture is different than Northern European. Also, how do you see that embedding into the city creation? So I like to think of it as as looking at the right to the city. So the right to the city is an idea by Henry Lefebvre and and. What it says is that we have the right to reshape ourselves by reshaping the city. And so you can kind of ask the question of what's happening in Western societies. That's one of the biggest problems, which is loneliness and the breakdown of social cohesion. And part of it is cultural, but part of it is also how that culture created the cities that then shape us. And so if you want to tackle these societal problems like loneliness or low social cohesion, you have to think, how do you get people out into the street? How do you get them to socialize? How do you get them to, you know, keep on meeting and be comfortable outside and change the social contract in the street? How do you make it okay to speak to strangers? These are all things that are part of the city's fabric, sometimes in a very like ephemeral and unfelt way, but it's absolutely embedded in there. And I think that's, you know, depends what issue you're trying to solve for which society. But in Western societies, I think low social cohesion is probably what's breaking down a lot of trust and uh, social well-being. No, I fully agree. Like I live now in between Lisbon and Amsterdam and it's such a, both cities are great and amazing and love them both, but it's such a different into going in the street in Lisbon. People smile at you, say hi, you know. Mm-hmm. They live outside more, of course, because of the weather conditions, And then in Amsterdam, everyone is really efficient and everything works perfectly, but there is less warmth in the streets, I would say. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so you can take, I think, 
two good extremes in cold weather. So London is a city that has really had that engineered out of it. There aren't many benches for the sake of maintenance or, or different reasons. People dwelling in streets has been discouraged for centuries. And so over the years, what you get is very low social cohesion because they don't meet on the street. There's not enough reason to be on the street. It's not comfortable. It's discouraged. But Copenhagen, which is equally cold or colder, has a different approach to it. So in Copenhagen, for example, it's completely normal for cafes and bars outside to give you blankets to sit outside, right? In the UK, that just wouldn't happen. And, you know, that's part of the built environment. How we function in the built environment is part of it. So in Copenhagen, you have street life, even though it's a far colder place than London. So it's not necessarily just climate, although climate is extremely important, mm -hmm. but it's also how we use the spaces. London is one of our best-selling cities and for locals. So maybe we bring the playfulness there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the bigger, the maybe initiatives like yours are part of the change that need to happen in terms of how we see the potential of cities to change society, right? And maybe places like London really need things like yours to get people out into the street and understand that the street has value. Yeah. It has value beyond movement, beyond commercial profit. It has value for narrative and it has value for sense of belonging. And these things, because we often don't concentrate on them, have been skipped. Yeah, that is... So uh, thank you for doing your work. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. really important. Thank you for putting it in the words <laughs> in a really smart way. <laughs> thank you. I need to take notes. All right. Yes. It's been a pleasure. It was Thanks a pleasure. very much for your time as well. Yeah, wow, cities. <laughs> so much about cities. We're, I guess cities are important to you. Of course, people, 60% of the people will live in cities. So rather intriguing insights, to be honest. So what resonated most with you, Tim? I, I think it's really interesting, the, um, this idea of social cohesion and the, what Itai was mentioning that, uh, you know, uh, he cited Henri Lefebvre, right? The right mm -hmm. to city, that city is sort of modeling how we want to live together, what it means to be human. And cities are sort of the ultimate human experiment, if you will. And that there is a tendency, right, that they're becoming too homogenous and streamlined and that they look the same. I think that's one of the things that I come across when I travel through cities, that so many cities, at least the uh, centers, right, and they, they just all look alike. They have the yeah. same shops, they have the same malls, have the same designs, which is really a pity. I don't know if you, you share that impression. I was curious about because uh, she was actually talking about Amsterdam and how efficient it is. So I used to live for a couple of years in Amsterdam. For me, it was always like vacation, but that's maybe the reason why, because I came from, from Germany, I was commuting between Germany and Amsterdam. For me, it really was coming down. So what resonated right now is what she mentioned is making a city an experience with playful gaming. So really making learning your environment very playful. It's a pretty interesting thought because I don't know where you lived in the world, but every time, to be honest, I really experience a city when we have guests and then you need to guide them around and then you experience something. But if you just live there, you just take things for granted and you don't look around. So. Yeah, there's always, I think, with technology now, there's this opportunity to make the invisible visible or build an extension of a city. So Pokemon Go did that, the game, right? It's, it's also like a gamified <laughs> version of exploring yeah, a city. And it's interesting that just the city we see, there's the built environment and there's all the relationships and the social networks that are taking place in the city. But 
there's also like now additional layers of information or context or stories that we can tap into through augmented or virtual reality. I think the richer, the more serendipitous a city can be, the more romantic a city can be, I think the better. And I think because we're in Lisbon, it's interesting because Lisbon is also, some people are really worried that it's so successful, right? And attracting mm-hmm. so many true. investors and people who move here that they say it could become the next Barcelona, as in Barcelona has become too successful for its own good, right? It's drowning in tourism. And I think those are some of the challenges for, for cities. Absolutely. So for me, actually, was two thoughts as well that came to my mind. Um I also had a chat with Itai and he was basically telling also like in the the podcast right now that really your well-being, how you feel, how you interact in your social network and not only in your digital social network, but really in your physical social network is pretty much influenced by how a city is shaped. And he was telling me this um Uh, with the example of Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv, so coming from innovation, of course, you always think Tel Aviv is a hot spot. And he mentioned many people travel there and fly back and say, ah, oh, we just reproduce that somehow. And he, what he mentioned, there are a lot of spaces where people can gather, where they can meet. So this influence of structure on culture and society was rather intriguing. So think about China, where they built cities out of the blue. What does that to the society? That's an interesting thought. And the second one, of course, as a mobility company, talking about streets. So before the podcast, streets was something to get from A to B, to be honest. Now it opened up a little bit my mind of, okay, streets are things that influence people, create spaces for gathering, for well-being, if you like to be in a city or not. To be honest, when I look back, I lived in several cities. Of course, there are cities where you loved to live and other cities where they didn't love to live. And I think this is also a mission we can take with us to really shape this in a different way. Yeah, it's interesting how structure shapes behavior or your well-being and the built environment and the location, right? Location, location, location matters, which is also why we're so intrigued and why we're here in a house and why we call it the house of beautiful business and why these conversations are taking place in certain rooms Mm -hmm. that has an influence as well on the topic and I think the way these conversations are going. If you want to listen to further episodes of the Porsche at the House of Beautiful Business podcast series, then you can just find them where you found this one. Yeah, and please comment as well and share your thoughts on that and stay tuned. Uh, We're looking forward for further contents. Christian, that was beautiful. Thank you very much, Tim.